It is so good to see you. Uh, I told my dear friend Kim, who was over here on base, uh, you're a sight for sore eyes. I cannot tell you how much, Marie, and I have missed you guys. I, I'd like to just stand up here and just kind of soak in seeing your faces again. We've missed you guys very much. We were in Oregon for much of the month of study break. Um, there's good rest time in that. There was good time uh, thinking, praying, planning about the church as well. I think the highlight this year was we were on study break during reason my 40th wedding anniversary. It, it was a Sunday morning through our son. We found a small church in, in Eugene, Oregon. And uh, during the service, we got to serve each other communion. And we'd already, in the day, we'd already begun to feel just the um, gravity of the blessings of God. How many people get like, 40 years together? And so we serve each other communion, and my precious bride looks up at me with tears of joy streaming down her face, and she says, we, we didn't deserve this. Like just the pure gift of God. And, and so that was a huge highlight for us in that. And as it turned out, this church uh, it is a year and a half old. There's a young pastor and his wife. We got to spend some time with him. Fell in love with this young church there. But let me tell you, there's no place like home for us. There's no place like the harbor with you guys. And so we're so thankful, so glad to be back. This is, this is a good time in life for Marie and me. At least I could say that today. This is a good time for Marie and me. It is for many of you as well, I know. Many of you are in just a great season right now. I've seen some students, and they're the happiest I've seen them since, well, last summer when school wasn't going on. It's a great season for them, and I've seen some teachers even happier than the students are. That For many of you, maybe, hopefully most of you, this is a good season. But there are a number of you that are in trying times right now. There are a number of you, this is just a hard time, a hard run. Maybe it's financial stresses and pressures. Maybe it's a job that's not going well or that has gone away for you. Maybe it's illness that has set in and won't let go. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's a marriage that, that hasn't made 40 years and you don't know if it will. Maybe it's a rift between you and your parents or you and your kids or you and your siblings or friends or co-workers. Uh, maybe it's, it's the loss of a loved one for some. In fact, e- indeed, within the last 24 hours here, it's a hard time suddenly because of the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's just simply, it's, it's a time of deep uncertainty and the stakes are so high. It can, be, it can be a hard time. It is a hard time for some right now. I want to spend just a moment around, around two scriptures, two truths And then we're going to move on to the main direction we're going. But these are important to lay some groundwork for us. The first is Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29, 11, God says, For I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah is writing this to the people of Israel at the time. And uh, and God speaking especially, specifically to the people of Israel in that circumstance. So it's really dangerous to take something out of context. It's dangerous to read just a sentence in the Bible and say, that applies to me. But this is one of those cases where all of the rest of Scripture unfolds and says, this is what God does say to you and to me. This is what God says to every human being taken in air. I know the plans I have for you. They're plans for good, not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, we all have our own free will and we can choose to go to other plans, but, but God's plans are for good. He is a good God. 
But the other passage is John 16, 33. John 16, 33. Jesus says, and he's speaking to ones who have chosen to radically follow God's plan for their life. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. He's saying, if you, if you follow with abandon, you will have many trials and sorrows. I was uh, reflecting on this when I was beginning to, to prepare this week's message for you. And, and I thought about four hard seasons of our life. Not a hard day, not a hard week, hard season. Just hard. I spoke to Marie later and said, tell me your memories of hard times. And by the time we were done, there were, there were half a dozen more. Just hard times. Many, many years back, we were in the middle of one of those very, very hard times. And I began to reflect about the, the people that Marie and I knew very well. Not the people we knew casually, the people we knew really well. And every single one that I knew had suffered some deep, difficult time, if not many deep, difficult times. And I began to realize, and the phrase that came to my mind was, no one gets out unscathed. And I've come to believe that's true. It's what Jesus talks about. If you, if you live on this planet, then there will be trying times. Right? No one gets through unscathed in this life. And when we're in those trying times, it raises questions often. Where is God in those trying times? Some of you have asked those questions this week, maybe this morning. Where is God? What is God doing? What am I to do? What would he have me do in these trying times? And how can, I, how can I have my faith thrive in this time? Or maybe even more fundamental, how can I even find faith in this time? And that's where we're going for, for four weeks now. We'll be in this book of, of Habakkuk, and I'll give you some background on it for four weeks. But I would say this, if you are in a trying time now, and some of you are, this, this is for you. Uh, this has been prepared just for you, but I would also say... If you're in a good time right now, there's no better time to learn how to navigate the hard times than now. If you're in a good time right now, I would urge you even more, take notes now. I mean, get it. Get it now because the trying time will come. The trying times will come and you'll know how to go. You'll you'll know how to navigate it. You'll know how to go from there. So we're going to be in this book of Habakkuk. It's found on page 712 in the Bibles if you picked up one that the church hands out. It's on page 712. I'll give you some context and some background. Um, in the Old Testament, there, there are 16 prophets that authored books in the Old Testament. There are 16 of them. Four of them are called major prophets. You would recognize their names maybe a little more likely. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And they're called major prophets, not because they, they had the major theology or they had major impact. They were just bigger books, especially the first three. They're just a lot bigger books. And so down through the centuries, they've been known as the major prophets. There's the four of those. There are 12 that are minor prophets. And Habakkuk is one of those 12. And those books simply tend to be much shorter. In fact, this book of Habakkuk is only three chapters. And depending on the size of your pages and the size of your print, it's about three pages. That's about all it is. No, it's just minor prophet. And Habakkuk would write, again, give you just perspective, he would write somewhere between the period of 609 B.C. to 605 B.C. 2,600 years ago. This is ancient wisdom. This is ancient wisdom passed down 2,600 years ago. And that window of four or five years, we know he was writing during that time. He was writing to the people 
in the kingdom known as the kingdom of Judah. And to give you just a little bit of info that might help to where you know where this is at, about three centuries before he would write, the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel had this great civil war. And there was this split of the nation, of the kingdom, into two kingdoms, the north kingdom and the south kingdom. The north kingdom was known as the kingdom of Israel. The south was the kingdom of Judah. It's where Jerusalem was. It's where the temple was. And so, so he's writing specifically to the kingdom of Judah. And these people of God, and God's people, God's chosen ones that live in the kingdom of Judah, down where Jerusalem is and the temple is and so forth. And, and to give you a little more perspective, too, if you want to... to um, as you're navigating the Bible, know how this fits in even better. He had some contemporaries that were writing at the same time. The book right before his is Nahum, and he was writing at the very same time, very same people, same circumstances. The book right after Habakkuk, Zephaniah, same thing. He's writing to the same crowd, same time, same problem. So the book right after, book right before as well. And then the major prophet Jeremiah uh, provides so much insight about what was going on. He was a contemporary as well, writing to the same people, same circumstances, same time. And, and, and these were very trying times, and we'll see what they looked like in just a few moments now. But the, the name Habakkuk, and, and it appears that it wasn't a name that he took on when he wrote this book. In fact, he didn't know it was going to be a book of the Bible. This was just the guy's name. As God would have it, he was named Habakkuk, which happens to mean embrace, which would suggest in a biblical context, the embrace of God, the security and the warmth of the embrace of God. And so if you know that and you pick up this book and and you are in trying times or you're preparing for a time that will be very difficult and you read the very title, if you were were an Israelite, if you were someone from Judah, you you would understand this hope in this book. The very title itself suggests the the comforting, warm embrace of God in your very, very difficult times. And so this, this is the book that we'll be in. So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to Habakkuk with me. If you don't have one of the Bibles we handed out, it's near the very, very end of the Old Testament. The, all, the entire prophets are all at the end of the Old Testament, and Habakkuk is one of the very last ones toward the end. So, so we'll read starting verse 1. It says, this is the message that the prophet Habakkuk received in a vision. The significance of that is that it's saying that everything that follows, which happens to be a conversation between Habakkuk and God, was, was in this vision, or in other words, a very intimate encounter with God. A vision suggested that you can actually see with your eyes. A vision suggested that it is, or, or you experience it as very physical, very literal, very close, very intimate. That's not the way we usually have a conversation with God, is it? Uh, for me, it's more this, it's a whole lot less you know, visual than that for me. But this was a unique case. This was a rare case. And so it's saying the things that came out of this were out of this very, very intimate time of conversation with God, very intimate, vision type stuff, mystical type stuff. And perhaps the reason is God wanted to be sure Habakkuk got it right. Nothing was missed, and we would know all of this is God's ordained word for us now. And so he, he gets this in a vision, and then verse 2 begins his conversation toward God. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere, I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? 
Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The laws become paralyzed, and there's no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. He's crying out to God. He's saying, how long? In other words, he's been praying for quite a while. There was a four or five-year window in which we know he wrote somewhere in that window. We don't know how long he's been praying. It's been more than a day, I bet. I bet more than a week, more than a month, two, three, four years, crying out to God, how long, God? And he's saying, you don't listen? You don't save? I come to you day after day, and then he begins to describe the circumstance in this very brief summary, and I'll fill in some more gaps for you. But he's saying... He's saying that um, I, forever I see these evil deeds. And it was a description of the land in which he lived. And this wasn't because, this is important, this wasn't because some foreign power had conquered them and the foreigners were this way. This is the way the people of God had become. These were God's people. And he's saying, everywhere I look, it's, the summation is evil. And the result is misery. Not just mine, but this, this whole land is filled with misery. And he would describe, he would say, everywhere I look, I see destruction and violence. I see such dissension among people. They love to fight and argue. It's not just that the circumstances seem to push them that way. They love that. They, they, they jump to the chance of that, and, and justice has been deeply perverted. It's been deeply perverted. And then if you look beyond just this brief summary here, if you look at particularly Jeremiah, And you read Jeremiah, you get some context or some other biblical sources or some other secular sources of history as well. You find that that there's this new king that came into power in 609 BC where the prior king had been this godly man and and he'd lived a humble life and and had lived with modest resources. This new king now was all about opulence and extravagance for himself. And he'd caused forced labor among his own people so he could have a bigger palace and, and more opulent palace and on and on and on so there's this forced labor that's going on there was this idolatry in the temple and and in uh, the synagogues beyond that they had adopted these false gods from around the world there was this deep idolatry and and the best way that my heart was wrecked by this was to understand what that actually fleshed out as in one aspect was that was worship with temple prostitution They'd come to a point where they, they had prostitutes in what we would call the church. And they said, this is how you can worship God. Welcome, come in. It had become so badly perverted. The innocent were being murdered. Jeremiah writes in chapter 26 of, of his prophecy, he talks about Uriah, who was a contemporary prophet of Habakkuk and Jeremiah. And he talks about how, how the authorities killed him because he was speaking out, innocents being murdered. If, again, if you want a bigger context, we're going to be in this for four weeks now, and you could take the book of Jeremiah and just begin to read a couple of chapters a day and, and get this sense of, of the world that he was living in. Deeply, deeply trying time. So what does he do? Verses 2 through 4 says he's moving toward God with this honest unfiltered, unceasing prayer. He's moving toward God, and very specifically, it's his honest prayer. And it's unfiltered, and it's unceasing 
prayer. He's saying, man, God, you don't listen. You don't save. And then he just gives God a description of what he assumes God can see. And basically what he's saying to God is, "I, I thought I knew you. I thought I knew your heart and your character. I thought I knew what you would do. But something is deeply amiss. God, this is what I see. I don't understand why you haven't changed this. I don't understand why you have not changed this. And in his two words, how long, this isn't the first time he's prayed this. Suggests he's prayed it again and again and again. Do you get a glimpse of of the honesty of the prayer? It's not this sugar-coated, you're a great, wonderful God, thank you, and amen, now go back to my misery and wonder what what happened. It's not a case of, of, of thinking, I don't think God's even listening, and he filters that out of the prayer. He, he includes it right there, God. I, I, what, what is amiss, God? You see the misery. I'm crying out. It doesn't appear even listening. Completely unfiltered. If this were the only place that we had a prayer like that, I, don't, I wouldn't suggest that there's this uh, guiding principle for us that's so important. But if you read through the Psalms, a full one-third of the Psalms are psalms of lament. Uh, lament is just passionate grief and sorrow. There are 150 psalms, a full one-third of them are, are psalms of lament, of crying out to God, just like this prayer here. I'll read you a brief part of one in Psalm 13, 1 through 3. This is King David writing this, we, and we don't know if he was king at the time he wrote it, but, but he says, O oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. A third of the Psalms are like that. The book of Jeremiah, it's 52 chapters. It's filled with lament. The book of Jeremiah is filled with lament. Jeremiah would write another book. He's the only prophet of the Old Testament to write more than one book. And the book is titled Lamentations. You know what that means? The lament. <laughs> That's just, he just put the label on it. This God, this is a lament. This passionate grieving before you. I don't understand God. This horrible time I'm in. The book of Job, which historians and biblical historians think was the very first book of the Bible actually ever written. 42 chapters lament there's this deep deep suggestion that that that's how we should engage with god in trying times in fact if you even look in revelation john is being shown this picture of heaven and there's this point in chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 where it says that, that john sees the ones that have been martyred and he sees their souls they're beneath the altar and they're the ones that have been martyred. And this is what they're saying to God who, who they see now with their eyes. It says they shouted to the Lord. Like not a, they kind of threw out a thought. Like they shouted to the Lord. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood so what they, for what they've done to us? E- even in heaven, th- this, this honest, unfiltered, 
unceasing prayer is, is so crucial. And this is what it would suggest about Habakkuk. Think with me about this. The fact that he's even praying it suggests that, that, that he still holds on to some hope that God actually hears prayers. You see that, don't you? He wouldn't be praying if he'd given up hope. Although he's wondering, he's saying, God, you don't hear. And yet he's praying, which suggests there's still this hope there. There's some, some measure of faith that you hear prayers. There's still some measure that, uh, that he believes God is good. God hates evil. Or he would have quit crying out to God. He doesn't understand it. It appears there's some disconnect to what he believes about God, but, but he still hopes there's still a thread of faith that God is good. He believes, at least with a thread of belief, that God has power to change this planet. That God can step down in, in a moment into horrible circumstances and change it all. Or he wouldn't even be having the conversation. He believes all that about God. It, it's a prayer it's a prayer of faith. Do you see that? It's a prayer of struggling faith. But that's often where we find ourselves in hard times. So a lot of you have found yourself this morning and this weekend and this week and maybe for a long, long season. Faith that's struggling. Maybe in some cases, no faith at all. But there's this, there's this crucial, crucial learning here to move toward God, not away from him, not ignore him, not bury ourselves in the hard times, move toward him with honest, unfiltered, unceasing prayer. Honest means don't, don't say something you don't believe. I've, I've done that before. Sometimes it can almost feel like a road habit. Uh, there's some theological thing I know or something I read in scripture. I know it sounds proper and I know if you heard me pray, you'd be impressed and you'd say, that's my pastor. <laughs> But that's not honest prayer. God, God wants honest prayer, not spiritual platitudes. Years ago, I was in, in the oil business. There was, there was a three-year run. There was this horrible season of employment. In fact, it was so bad, one of my peers, his friends and family began to fear for him because he appeared to become suicidal. This is horrific time. And I was a fairly new follower of Jesus. And so I, I knew, I knew God would want me in a great, sweet place filled with other followers of Jesus. Maybe we could even join for lunch and sing Kumbaya or, or something more contemporary than that. I, I knew that. And so day after day, week after month after month, I would cry, God, I, I don't understand. I, I'm following you now. Why would you leave me in the dense darkness right here? And I had it all mapped out. I said, God, I know. You want me to be in this peaceful place, this joyful place, place where people know you, people love you. I know you want that. I even tried to help God. I, I was in this big corporation, and there was a, just a, a logical opening that came up, and I was by far the most likely one to have it. I broadly expressed my desire to have it, and there was some leadership that I had great relationship with, and it was a done deal, except it didn't happen. In three years, God, I didn't realize how I was coming home, but one day I came home and Marie asked how my day was and I told her, I guess what I always said, and her, her shoulders sank. And she said, I wish just once you would come home and I'd ask you and you'd say, it was a great day. So a few days later I came home and she asked me, I said, it was a great day. And, and her shoulders raised, she said, really? And I said, no, but you said you wanted to hear it. So... <laughs> 
So I told you, you heard it now. How do you feel? <laughs> it was a horrible day. It, it was that kind of season. But as the, as the three years unfolded, I, I kept going to God and saying, I don't get it. And, and he began to say, in the densest darkness, why would I withdraw even a small, small touch of light from that darkness? Why would I put you someplace else rather than leave you right there in the middle of that? I, I couldn't have been praying until then. If I had prayed in the beginning, God, I get it. This is where I belong. It would not have been honest. My honest thoughts were, something's amiss. I know you're about to move me or change the circumstances, but by the end of the three years, I could honestly pray. I, I get it. I understand. I, it's hard. It's hard. I would choose something else, but I get it. Unfiltered. Don't leave anything unspoken about the difficult times and the concerns that you have. If, if you have anger, don't leave out telling God that. And I would urge you, uh, this is the stunning God of the universe that loves you infinitely. And so do it with respect, but tell him. If you have anger, if you have doubt, if you have fears, if you have frustration, if you have questions, that's what unfiltered prayer is. It's taking all of that before God, and if need be, taking it again and again and again, because it's, it's, it's without ceasing, honest, unfiltered, unceasing prayer. Habakkuk's was how long? Telling us he'd been doing it for a long time. There's no sign this is the last prayer he's going to pray. Paul would write for us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, never stop praying. Paul would say to all Christ followers, never stop praying. There's no exception. It's not if, you, if you're in a really bad place, really bad time. If you feel like you're drowning, no exception for that. In fact, he would probably say even more so then. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells this parable. It's about someone who has a physical need. They go to a friend and Late at night, the friend doesn't want to pay attention to them. And Jesus, in the parable, the, the person just keeps asking the friend again and again and again. And the person finally gives in. And Jesus says, now, here's what I want you to take away from that. Keep asking, and you will receive. He doesn't say when. Keep asking, you will receive. Keep knocking, the door will be open. It'll be open to you. Uh, just again and again and again. He talks about that. Keep seeking, and you will find prayer that is without ceasing. Last week, Marie and I met a couple. Uh, for the first time, they have two children where in their high school years, they, they turned uh, radically against God and God's ways and complete rebellion against God. And uh, that's been over a decade now. And their kids have gone farther and farther from God. And, but yet we got to talk with this couple and we spent enough time, we could see that there was hope in their eyes and there was focus on God, and, and there's much encouragement going on. And so at one point, we said, what has is, what is helped you most to come where there's, there's a, a lightness to your step? The circumstance of your children has not changed. In fact, if anything, it's gotten worse. They become more embedded in opposition to God. And instantly, the dad said, prayer. He said, that's been the most important thing. There have been other things too, community, and on and on and on. But his first comment was just prayer. And I didn't 
asked them specifically, but it, from their comments and the time we spent together, it appeared that their prayers would probably be very, very honest and very unfiltered. And for over a decade, they'd been unceasing prayer. All of you would know of Mother Teresa. I have a picture of her. I've always loved pictures of this woman, partly because something about seeing someone that is that can take so many wrinkles and make them beautiful <laughs> with her smile. And you probably know some of the story about her. She was in, I believe in her 30s, when uh, she had some encounters with, with the risen Jesus that were, they were mystical. They were like the vision that Habakkuk had this time with God. They were, they were so close. They were so intimate. They were so powerful. It would be like, like Greg and I sitting down and talking. It would be like having a conversation with him. And it wasn't just once. It was again and again and again. And in those times with Jesus, Jesus said, I want you to go you got this cool spot in Europe. I want you to go, though, and abandon that and go to Calcutta, India and go to the worst of the slums where the poor and dying are, the sick and the dying are, and I want you to serve the sick and dying there. And, and the, the union was so great and so clear and so strong, she went. And she found the worst slum with the worst poverty and the greatest illness and the most dying people, and she began to care for dying people there. And as time would unfold, she would find herself day in, day out, as well as others that would join her over time, that, that her day would be filled with holding someone who died in her arms. Newborn, six months, 12 months, six years, 16 years, 60 years, didn't matter. This, this was the run of her days, and, and so we got to watch her do that. We watched her do that for 49 years, and we thought, how, how powerful, how cool. I wish I were like her. It wasn't until after she died that, that her mentor showed us how she did it and the circumstances with, within which she did it. After such, such clear like, vision time with Jesus, when she got to Calcutta and put her feet on the ground, he didn't give her any more of those visions anymore. In fact, so much so that she had so many cries of prayer toward him and say, Jesus, I, I don't feel you at all. I, I, I know you. We, we had some great times, but I haven't felt you at all today. And he had, she had day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year of that. So what she did was she continued doing the last thing Jesus told her to do for 49 years. Very, very trying times, which you and I can't even begin to fathom. But for 49 years, honest, unfiltered, unceasing prayer. There wasn't answered until September the 5th, 1997, 20 years ago, when she died, breathed her last, and crossed the threshold of heaven and met Jesus face to face. A model for us of what it looks like in trying times. Honest, unfiltered, unceasing. Our ultimate example was a Thursday night. Jesus knows he's about to enter the most trying time anyone who would ever take breath on this planet would have. And we see him in a garden facing the most trying times with honest, unfiltered, unceasing prayer to the Father. At one point he says, my soul is being crushed to the point of death. 
to the point of saying, even though he knows this is the salvation of mankind, of saying, if there's any other way, let's bypass the cross. We see him on Friday on the cross when he takes, when he actually takes the sin of humankind, mine included, upon his shoulders. In the ugliness of that, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Honest, unfiltered, unceasing prayer. Last breath on the cross, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit to you, the entire run of it. And then we know that Friday wasn't the end. We, we sing this beautiful song, the cross has the final word, and that's true about our sin. It's what that song is all about. Many of you, we've sung that with gusto. It's all about, about our sin. The cross has the final word. The cross wasn't the final word about Jesus. The resurrection's the final word. And let, let that give you hope. If you're in the middle of a deeply difficult time now, to give you hope, as, as Scripture would teach you to move toward God in this trying time with honest, unfiltered, unceasing prayer to give you great hope that whether it takes a week or a day or 49 days or 49 years or however long it is that like the story ends beyond our wildest dreams. The story ends in the resurrection. The first thing to learn about Habakkuk and some of you need to be sure you're, you're living it out right now. Move toward God with honest unfiltered, unceasing prayer. Father in heaven, um, may this soak into our hearts, into our minds. May we grasp it enough and have enough faith to practice it. I pray especially for those in such hard times now, Father. You know everyone, you know every detail, you know the grief, the sorrow, the suffering, the questions, the struggles, you know every bit of it. I pray for them with a full heart for them that they will find their way in this time with you. They will find faith but find a thriving faith as they move toward you with this honest, unfiltered, unceasing prayer. I pray with much hope and expectation. In Jesus' name, amen.